0: Hear now the reading of God's word from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life Of its possessors. May God bless the reading of his word. Please pray with me once more. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this time be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? Show us Christ and teach us wisdom from your scriptures. Through the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our study in the book of Proverbs. Uh, last week, if you recall, we studied the prologue to the book, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And this morning, we're beginning to explore the first major section of the book of Proverbs, a section that stretches from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 9. Uh, remember, in the prologue to Proverbs, we saw that the author of Proverbs is Solomon, that the purpose of Proverbs is to teach us wisdom, that the theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord which is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. And we saw that the fulfillment of Proverbs is ultimately in the Lord Jesus himself, uh, the true son of David, the wise king of Israel. Now, what we find throughout the rest of this first section of Proverbs, chapter one to nine, uh, is a series of speeches from a wise father to his young son, Uh, Judging from the content of the speeches, it seems like the son being addressed is maybe 16 or 17 years old, and the book of Proverbs invites us, whoever we are, uh, to listen in on this father's counsel to his son. Even if we don't find ourselves in the same situation as the son being addressed, uh, we should be eager, in this case, to eavesdrop on this conversation That's how God has designed Proverbs to teach all of us wisdom. The first thing I want to point out to you about this first speech of the wise father to his son in Proverbs is that this father's speech is firmly rooted in the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that? And what's the fifth commandment? Well, the fifth commandment reads like this. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. That's what the father wants his son to do there in verse 8. He says, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. The son is here to honor his father and his mother by listening to them. What's the sixth of the Ten Commandments? you shall not murder. That's exactly what the father warns the son against there in verse 10. The father's concerned that his son not join with those, the text says, who lie in wait for blood. What's the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. Again, that's precisely what the father is warning his son against, those who fill their houses with other people's plunder. What's the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. Again, that's all over the father's words there in verse 19. The father warns his son against being greedy for unjust gain. But you can see the father's counsel to his son is firmly rooted in God's revelation at Mount Sinai. And notice even the father's introductory words in that second line from verse 8. There he tells his son to forsake not your mother's teaching. That word translated teaching there is literally, literally the Hebrew word Torah, uh, elsewhere translated as law, often used to refer to the law of Moses. And so the father is choosing these words intentionally to connect his wise parental counsel to God's revealed laws. I know less than nothing about parenting, uh, but Proverbs seems to be suggesting that good parental instruction or really any kind of wise counsel must be rooted in God's revealed word, in his good laws. This father is not wise because he's just an insightful fellow or because he became up with a bunch of brilliant insights on his own. This father is wise because he's learned to see the world through the lens of God's word. And that's what he wants for his son as well. The Father's speech is firmly rooted in the Ten Commandments. Can you also see how the Father's counsel beautifully complements the Ten Commandments? It's rooted in them. It also beautifully complements them. Two ways this passage complements God's law, we read in the Ten Commandments. First, in the law, in the Ten Commandments... God declares to us. In the law, God declares what is good and what is evil. God declares in the law what he's like and what he wants us to be like. And really, God's declaration is sufficient to settle the matter because God is God and we can trust him. But in Proverbs, really throughout Proverbs, Can you see that God is concerned not only to declare to us, but to persuade us, right? This, this wise father, he doesn't just want to remind his son of the 10 commandments. The wise father wants to demonstrate as God does throughout the scriptures, that God's commandments are good. He wants his son to see that God's commandments lead to life. That what God calls us to do is the way to live skillfully. This father wants his son to see why sin is so bad. He aches for his son to share his view of the destructiveness of sin. And Proverbs complements God's law by demonstrating and persuading us of the wisdom and the goodness of God's commands. Here's the second way that Proverbs complements God's law. This passage in Proverbs reveals that our obedience is downstream of our listening. Our obedience is downstream of our listening, Proverbs shows us. In one sense, again, what we see in this passage is a father reminding his son about four of God's Ten Commandments. But behind that, what we see is two parties in competition for the son's listening. In this passage, we get not just two choices, we get two speeches. Did you notice that? The father doesn't just describe what these sinners will tempt the son to do. He describes what they'll say to him. So in one sense, the the question in this passage is, what will the son do? Will he break God's commandments? But the question behind that question is, to whom will the son listen? Who has the son's ear? Whose words, the father's or the friend's, does the son find sweet and trustworthy? Whose voice in the son's mind leads to life?" and blessing. That's what the Son has to decide. And so, with the rest of our time this morning, God permitting, first, I just want us to walk through this passage uh, verse by verse. And as we do, we'll stop to make some observations along the way. And after we do that, I want us to take some time to think about our own answer to that question behind the passage. To whom will we listen? To whom will we listen? So first, let's get an overview of the passage here. Our passage breaks down pretty neatly uh, into three sections. So first, we have the Father's call to listen. That's there in verses 8 and 9. And then after that, we have the Father's warning. This is the biggest section from verse 10 all the way down to verse 18. And third and finally, we get the Father's lesson there in verse 19. So the Father's call to listen, 8 to 9. The father's warning, 10 to 18, and the father's lesson, uh, verse 19. Let's walk through each of those. First there in verses 8 and 9, we find the father's call to listen. Look at verse 8. It reads, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching." Proverbs agrees here with the book of Deuteronomy and also with the Apostle Paul about the foundational role that parents are to play in teaching their children God's wisdom. In Proverbs, as you can see from verse 8, both the father and the mother are involved in the process of teaching this son. The father leads, both are involved. Proverbs seems to be holding that out as a model for godly parents. If you're here this morning and you are a young person, uh, first, I'm really glad that you're here. I love seeing you guys. I love you guys, you specifically. Listen, God's word teaches that your parents are what God wants to use to make you wise. The way that God wants to teach and grow you, kids, is through your parents So if you're here this morning, listen to your parents. Honor your father and mother by listening carefully to what they tell you. And we see something here in this passage about how the father wants his son to listen there in verse 9. Verse 9 says, For they, your father's instruction and your mother's teaching, they are a graceful garland. That's like a wreath crown thing for your head, and pendants, or a beautiful necklace for your neck. You know that there's more than one kind of listening, right? So when I go to the grocery store, and when I check out, uh, the cashier tells me how much my groceries cost, and I sorta, kinda, listen, right? If I'm paying with cash, I sort of listen enough to know which bills to get out. So the cashier says that'll be 3472. And I think, okay, so I need a 20, a 10, and a 5. That'll be, and I'll get 28 cents back, right? And then I totally forget, right? That's one kind of listening. Here's another kind of listening. Imagine that I'm checking out at the store, and the cashier says to me, sir, that'll be 3472. And I look him in the eye. And I say, 3472. And he says, yeah, 3472. And I say, ah, 3472. Sir, I got it. And I take the receipt, which is really nothing but a record of what the cashier has told me. And I go home. And I get my scissors, and I get on YouTube, and I look up some origami classes, and I craft the receipt, the record of Milton from Amazon Fresh's words to me that my groceries cost $34.82. And I craft the receipt into a pendant or a necklace for my neck. And the rest of the week, I wear it around so as to remind me in all of my relationships, in all of my dealings, that Milton from Amazon Fresh told me that my groceries cost 34, 72. Right That's a really silly example, right? And it's silly because how much my groceries cost isn't that important. But young people, young people, listen. The wise counsel of your godly parents is so important. Christian, listen, the wise counsel of your heavenly father is so important. It's so important that you need to wear it around like a necklace, that you need to consider it a garland, a crown to wear wherever you go. The words of your heavenly father are meant to be worn like something important to you. They're meant to be a part of your outfit. Something you put on every time you get dressed. Something you present every time you interact with others. Something you're conscious of in all of your dealings and doings. They're a graceful garland for our head. Pendants for our neck. That's God's counsel to us. It's clear from this image that these wise parents' instructions, they're meant to be a blessing to his son, right? The father doesn't say, wear our instructions like handcuffs that keep you from having a good time. He doesn't say, remember that our instructions are around your neck like a shock collar to get you when you do the wrong thing, right? The father says his his counsel will be a graceful garland, A pendant for your neck in that day would clearly have been a symbol of blessing and favor and honor, right? The father is telling his son, listen to what your mother and I are telling you, because it will make your life beautiful. Listening to what we tell you will be good for you. It will bring life and blessing." That's the father's call to listen there in verses 8 and 9. Christian, hear your heavenly father's call to listen to his words like that in this father's words. That's the first section of the father's speech. Second section of the passage is there in verses 10 to 18. Uh, There we have the father's warning. The father's warning. Verse 10 Uh, summarizes the entire warning very concisely. It has two lines. Verse 10 says this, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Two parts there, the if and the then. If sinners entice you, implicitly then, then do not consent. Those are really the two subsections of the warning. So in verses 11 to 14... Uh, The the father describes the sinners' enticements. If sinners entice you, that's eleven to fourteen, and then in verses fifteen to eighteen, he tells the son why he should not consent to the enticement of sinners. It's worth pointing out right here that the father is using that word sinners uh, to describe people who have chosen a lifestyle contrary to God's law. So if you read the book of Romans, you'll discover that. In the deepest sense, we are all sinners. In this passage in Proverbs, the Father is speaking specifically in its immediate context about people who have chosen a flagrantly immoral and, in fact, illegal lifestyle, a lifestyle of murder and theft, uh, as we'll see. So let's now walk through these two subsections of the Father's warning, first through 11 to 14 and then 15 to 18. There in verses 11 to 14, the father gives voice to the sinner's enticements. The father understands that his son's obedience or disobedience is a matter of whose voice he chooses to hear. The father tells the son about the deeds he'll be tempted to do, but also about the other voice he'll be tempted to listen to. And did you notice this wise father He's able to give the strongest version of his opponent's argument. And by the way, that's really helpful when you're trying to be persuasive, right? The father, he understands the appeal of real evil, even though he's intent on helping his son see that its promises are false. There in verses 11 to 14, the father puts his finger on several appeals of these sinners' enticements. Look at the first appeal that he describes. The appeal of thrill there in verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. The father says, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like she'll let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. These mobsters, they invite the son to join them in murder for no reason. Just because the doing of the deed offers a kind of evil thrill. And friends, especially young people, you know this, right? Evil can be thrilling for a little while. these thugs, they get a rush from murdering innocent people. They feel powerful when they swallow up innocent victims. And listen, if all that you want is a little short-term pleasure right now, you can probably get that from doing evil. St. Augustine, who lived around 400 AD, one of the greatest theologians, if not the greatest in the history of the church— He tells a story about how when he was young, before he was a Christian, he and his friends used to steal pears from a neighbor's tree, and then they would throw the pears away. They didn't even want the pears. They had access to better pears, but they enjoyed stealing because sinners love sinning together. Listen, sometimes people want to do the wrong thing because it's wrong. Sometimes people find pleasure in ungodly speech. For example, in sexually immoral joking just because it's wrong. Sometimes people lie just to get away with lying. Sometimes people hurt others just for how it makes them feel. That's how sinful our hearts can be apart from the grace of God. The Father knows the sinner's enticements includes the offer of thrill, a second, these sinners' enticements also offer gain. They offer gain. These thugs plan to profit from their misdeeds. Look there in verse 13. They say, we shall find all precious goods. and We shall fill our houses with plunder. Look, they're, they're offering to share. Isn't that kind? Listen, evil can be, in a way for a time, profitable. Some people in the world are richer than they otherwise would be because they're greedy and because they're dishonest, even because they oppress and steal. And on a less sort of obvious and spectacular scale, temptation is often appealing because it offers some kind of non-material gain. Indulging road rage offers to make you feel powerful. Gossiping about others offers a shallow closeness between gossipers and a sense of moral superiority. Flattering people offers to make them like you for a little while. Laziness offers escape from pain and a sense of freedom. Venting your anger offers a sense of release. Greed offers more worldly goods than you might otherwise have in the short term. Sexual immorality offers gratification of powerful desires and a sense of control and approval and intimacy. Friend, read the Bible and you will find that God is not unaware of why evil people find evil attractive we see in evil a kind of gain. The third appeal of these sinners' enticements is all over these verses. It's the offer of belonging. Did you catch that? Notice the pronouns. Come with us. Let us. Lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. Verse 13, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. Listen, however old or young you are, do not underestimate how powerful the need to belong can be don't underestimate how badly you don't want to be left out. Listen, people will do a lot of things just to feel like they belong. People will pretend that they aren't what they are, or that they are what they aren't. People will change their opinions to belong. People will change their habits to belong. People will adjust their lifestyles and their spending. People will do things that they know to be wrong in order to feel approved of and accepted and secure and not in danger of being left out. That is not just a teenager thing. That is a real temptation. Friend, listen, solidarity can soften our sensitivity to sin. Right? Other people spend their money like this. We all do this. Other people use their time like this. We all do it. Other people are okay with this. We all do it. So it must be okay. Brothers and sisters, may God's word, God's word be the fundamental standard by which we evaluate. Not the behavior of those around us. Not the desire to belong. Those are The sinner's enticements there in verses 11 to 14. In verses 15 to 18, the father tells the son why he must not consent. Verses 11 to 14, if sinners entice you. Verses 15 to 18, do not consent. Verse 15, the father says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot. From their paths. However, old or young you are, be very careful who your close friends are. Always be kind to everyone indiscriminately. Be willing to be friends with people who don't know the Lord, absolutely. But do not closely associate with people whose lifestyle is overtly destructive and ungodly. Do not think that you can walk closely and intimately with them and just avoid the sinful things. Do not walk in the way with them, is the Father's counsel here. Elsewhere, Proverbs tells us, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, bad company corrupts good morals. That is to say, even if you want to do the right thing, if your closest and most intimate friends, not people that you're willing to be kind to, to have some relationship with, but the people that you walk with, do life with, entrust yourself to, even if you want to do the right thing, if those people are people who make a practice of doing the wrong thing, they will rub off on you and the negative effects of their sinful choices will affect you. This father doesn't want his son to join this murderous gang because he doesn't want what happens to murderous gangsters to happen to his son. Look at verse 16. The father says, for their feet run to evil. You might also translate that word as disaster. And they make haste To shed blood. Many commentators think, and I agree, that the father is being intentionally ambiguous in this verse. Right? These murdering thieves, they're rushing toward bloodshed. Whose bloodshed? We'll look at verses 17 and 18. Verse 17. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Right? No hunter sees a bird and and throws a net down and says, here bird, come on. Come on, come on to the net so I can have you for dinner, right? Just hop onto the net that I just spread right there, right? We know that that doesn't work. But as plain as the net before the bird, so plain, the Father says, is the end of those who embrace a violent, thieving lifestyle. He says, these men, verse 18, lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives, Proverbs says that if you would like to die violently, the best thing you could do is to associate yourself with violent criminals. The Bible is so clear. Proverbs is so clear. Much of the time, uh, the victims of violent crime are innocent, and the Lord will right all those wrongs one day. Not not every person who dies of violent crime has anything at fault for that. That's absurd. But Proverbs does say that if you want to increase your chances of that happening to you, then go befriend other people who commit violent crimes. Because to step outside the restraint of the law is to step outside the protection of the law. In our own country, the National Gang Center of the Department of Justice reports that youth often report joining a gang for protection. Lord, have mercy on us that in our country, young people feel that they need that protection. That's a huge problem. But the protection of a violent and illegal gang is a lie. The Gang Center reports that numerous research studies have shown that the risk and rate of victimization, especially violent victimization, increases substantially upon joining a gang. You don't need me to tell you that this morning. There in verse 19, the father concludes his speech with the lesson. He concludes by universalizing the principle that's been at play in the specific example he's given. Verse 19, the lesson is this. The father says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Herein lies the heart of the father's speech. This is the golden core of wisdom at the center of the passage. In this case, it's applied to greed for unjust financial gain. The father is showing his son that the gain of sin comes at a cost. The thing that you're tempted to be greedy for, the thing that you're tempted to take wrongly, that thing will take away your life. Unjust gain takes away the life of its possessors. And generalizing one step further, and this is certainly something we see all over Proverbs, the father is saying that the wages of sin is death, right? The heart of the father's wisdom is this. It's to see that because God is the fountain of life, to sin which is to offend against God and to turn away from Him, is to cut oneself off from true life. Right? My, my guess is that there are not many people here today who are really tempted to join uh, the 9th century BC Israelite mobsters. That's probably not your temptation. But friend, can you see that this passage is showing you that disobedience to God brings death into your life? can you see how your sin just think for a second about one sin that you struggle with get it in your mind can you see how your sin corrupts and disintegrates the flourishing that god wants his image bearers to enjoy can you see how your sin robs you of true life Can you see how the gain that you want from sin is actually killing you? The wisdom that the father wants for his son, Christian, the wisdom that our heavenly father wants for us is to see sin and its consequences clearly so that we might avoid its terrible end. Perhaps no one in church history has written better about this than the Puritan Thomas Brooks In his famous book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Brooks writes concerning the kind of temptation that we see here. He says that Satan endeavors when he tempts us, quote, to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. Satan, with ease, puts fallacies upon us, Brooks writes, by his golden baits, and then he leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. He promises the soul honor, pleasure, profit, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. Thomas Brooks encourages us as a remedy against this device of Satan. He says this, "...solemnly to consider that sin will usher in the greatest and saddest losses." That can be upon our souls. It will usher in the loss of that divine favor. That is better than life. And the loss of that joy. That is unspeakable and full of glory. And the loss of that peace. That passeth understanding. And the loss of those divine influences. By which the soul has been refreshed. Quickened, raised, strengthened and gladdened. And the loss of many outward mercies which otherwise the soul might have enjoyed. Brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand. God forgives sinners. And the father's children cannot lose his love. But Christian, right, you you know that sin ruins your ability to enjoy communion with God. Your ability to enjoy God's love is thwarted. By walking in sin. So what will the son do? Will he walk in the way with the sinners who entice him? Or will he listen to the father and hold back his foot from their paths? What the son does is downstream from whom the son listens to. If the son believes what the father says. If the father has his ear. This is a no brainer right? Don't consent. Bad deal. But if the son hears more sweetness and more safety in the enticements of his peers, it's game over. This passage paints a picture of a war for the heart of this young man. And ultimately it's a war between these words, hear my son in verse eight and come with us in verse 11 to whom will the son listen? Whom will he believe? Friend, this is what this passage asks you. Will you listen to what God says about sin or to what sin says about God? To whom will you listen? You realize that's what you're deciding every day as you choose between good and evil, between obedience and disobedience. In these first nine chapters of Proverbs, this first big section, 12 times that verb hear or listen appears again and again and again. The fundamental thing the father wants from his son, the first thing that has to be established, if anything else is to be, is that the son listen. Right, Every Israelite boy who grew up hearing the scriptures would have heard as Proverbs was read in the synagogue, chapter 1, verse 8, hear my son, chapter 4, verse 10, hear my son, chapter 5, verse 7, sons, listen to me again and again. And every Israelite, man and woman, every time that the Shema, the most famous verse in the Old Testament from our Old Testament scripture reading Literally, the Shema or the listen was read aloud in the synagogue. What would every Israelite hear? They would hear this. They would receive the call. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. That's not a throwaway word to introduce the passage. That's the heart of the passage. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. If you read the Bible, you know that the track record of Israel, the track record of my life, and friend, the track record of your life reveal that we are very poor listeners. We have deafened our ears to the Father's voice. We have listened to the siren song of sin. We've heeded the counsel that leads to death we've forsaken not only the teaching of our father and mother, but the words of the living God. Uh, But in the history of the world, there was one son who listened. Every time that the scriptures addressed this son, this one Israelite, every time the call came to him, hear my son, this son, could answer from his heart, speak, Father, I'm listening, right? Can you imagine the listening son, 15 years old, sitting in the synagogue, Proverbs being read, he's leaned over and fully attentive. He hears, hear my son, your father's instruction. And he says, I will Right? God had one son who listened perfectly to his father's wise counsel. That son grew up and he said, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. That son's name is Jesus. Jesus is the son who heard his father's words, the son who listened to the wisdom that gives life. But wait, what what happened to Jesus? Jesus. What happened to the son who listened? God's wise son, the son who listened, the son who was never once greedy for unjust gain, that son was killed violently by a mob. That son was crucified like a criminal, straight out of Proverbs 1. And listen, the reason that Jesus died that way was because he was listening to his father. Jesus died that way because he was on a mission from his father to die as a substitute for sinners like you and me who have not listened. The Bible teaches that for our sins against God, we have a worse thing coming than a violent death as a mobster. We have a day of reckoning with a holy God to whom we have not given the allegiance that we owe. And the same Bible teaches that in shocking mercy, God gave his listening son, his obedient son, to die as a substitute in the place of everyone who would trust in him. Jesus took on himself the death, the hell that our sins deserve, in order to save everyone who would trust in him. If you doubt what I'm saying, this is the powerful witness that God's words, God's words are the ones that lead to life. Three days after Jesus died as a substitute, because he had listened, God gave Jesus life. God raised Jesus, his listening son from the dead, a fact witnessed to by hundreds of people, many of them mentioned by name in the New Testament. Jesus heard his father's instruction and he was crowned with the graceful garland of resurrection. He received the pendant of eternal life and a seat at God's right hand. And friend, listen, if you will trust in Jesus Christ, if you will hear, if you will listen to his offer to forgive you, then God will forgive you. He will save you. And more than that, God will address you with these precious words from verse eight My son, my daughter. Listen, you have a fundamental need to belong somewhere. Earthly fathers, stable families, these are good things, these are gifts from God. Good places to belong in a proximate way, but ultimately, you need to belong to the God who made you. You need to belong to Him as His son or His daughter. That's what's on offer to you today through Jesus. Not only will God forgive you, not only will God adopt you, God will begin to teach you how to listen how to be wise like Jesus is wise, how to discern the false voice of sin, the enticements of sin from the life-giving voice of your father. Christian, remember that part of the good news for you today is that God, your forgiving father, is making you like Jesus, his listening son. God is committed to breaking our addiction to the death-inducing bait of sin. He is committed to making us wise like Christ is wise. And he has promised to crown us one day with a garland of grace and a necklace of honor. May our gracious Father continue to teach us to hear his words. Let's pray he would do that now. God, thank you that you have the words of eternal life. God, thank you for your listening son, Jesus, who died to save sinners. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would hear your offer of mercy in him and trust him wholly for salvation. Lord, for those of us who are your sons and your daughters through Jesus Christ, would you make us wise like Jesus is wise? God, would you teach us to listen to your life-giving words? Help us by faith to see sin as it is, to believe what you say when you teach us that sin leads to death. Lord, help us to hate sin that we might walk more closely with you. Thank you for your grace that is greater than all our sin. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.